Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like, you kind of can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing... Is so some bad. readers love that, and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by New York Times bestseller and finalist of the National Book Awards, Gabriel Savitt. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on. Excited to chat with you. Let's start off with Come See the Fair, your latest novel, which came out earlier this year. Tell us a bit about it. Well, it takes place during the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition, Chicago World's Fair. There actually have been a couple, three of Chicago World's Fairs. Uh, But the 1893 one, arguably, uh, with all due deference to to, the, the great expositions of London, uh, arguably, <laughs> the the most spectacular uh, such undertaking ever mounted, really gargantuan um, and wild, and really spectacular is the right word. Uh, everything in the world seems to have been there in one way or the other. Uh, and when I started writing the book, I was living in Illinois, and the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition is the single event in Chicago history most written about. So I was like, okay, there's plenty of research material here. But I was also living in a house at the time that was built in around the 1890s. So it was sort of suffused in the historical period. And uh, at around that time, when the, when the book started to kick off in my imagination, I went to a fundraiser for a, a local cultural institution, which happened to be a seance. Um, and I'm not a spiritualist particularly, uh, but I was like, man, this is not a, a common opportunity <laughs> here out in the cornfields <laughs> yeah. of Illinois. So let's go and check it out. Uh, it was really deeply fascinating uh, because it was transparently fake. <laughs> the, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the medium, you know, he, uh, he he was doing his job well enough, I suppose, but there were some repeat messages from the great beyond uh, bizarrely. Uh, two different people in the small audience in the central uh, Illinois town where it was taking place uh, got a message from the great beyond that their pet's diet should have less sodium in it, which seemed, oh. you know, a little <laughs> bit coincidental for my life. Yeah. Uh, also, everyone, every male in the audience seemed to have a troubled relationship with his father, which is fair enough. And every female in the audience seemed to have uh, a bad ex, also fair enough. But, you know, it, it didn't take a whole lot of detective work to sell off that, like, maybe these these uh, messages were coming from a different source. But it was still wildly compelling. Uh, you know, this medium would start talking to an individual audience member, and we'd all sort of sit forward and, and be really sort of riveted by the way that the guesswork played out. Um, it's a very seductive sort of thing sitting in the dark there, trying to work out, you know, people's pasts and people's needs, uh, essentially without any prior information. And so it sort of got me thinking about the boundaries and the connections between the real and the imaginary, which works well for me. Uh, I tend to write 
sort of magically inflected stories and I have a, a strong background in theater, which strikes me as the ultimate uh, sort of admixture of reality and, and imagination. Um, and so the book sort of came out of there. Uh, the plot follows a, a girl, a young girl named Ava Root, who is a spiritualist medium traveling around the country in the 1890s, who is used to, you know, making these sort of fraudulent mediumistic claims to audiences. Um, and then one night at a seance, she actually hears a voice in her head giving her these instructions to come see the fair. The fair turns out is the world's Colombian exposition, and there is someone waiting there to meet her. I won't put too much down ahead of time uh, so as not to, to spoil too much, but needless to say, the splendor, the paper-thin splendor of the fair uh, ends up having some real heavy stuff underneath. Yeah. Uh, and I say paper-thin uh, paper splendor of the fair, uh, you know, intentionally, it turns out this massive undertaking with over 200 glorious buildings uh, in Jackson Park in Chicago, including the largest building on the planet at the time that it was built, uh, all those buildings were built out of staff, which is essentially plaster of Paris, with the exception of one building. Uh, the, the, uh, the, it was called the Palace of Fine Arts at the time. It's now the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And that was the only building that was built really out of brick and stone uh, because they couldn't get the art insured if the building wasn't fireproof. Oh, okay. <laughs> then that's the only reason. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Otherwise it all would have been plaster Paris or whatever. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this, this, the sort of genre of this is, is historical fiction with fantastical elements. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I have something of an allergic reaction to the notion of genre. I think it's <laughs> a marketing tool, which is fine. Marketing yeah. is important. Um, mm -hmm. But often I, I find that readers, myself included, can box themselves in with genre more than is useful. Yes, it's set in history. Yes, there's magic in it. Uh, yes, it's published by young people's imprint. But, you know, <laughs> it's a story. Just like yeah. any. I mean, uh, if you start trying to, what, what genre is Macbeth? Right. Like I, I, that's historical. I suppose there are witches in that, you know, it's a play. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's a cracking good story, guys. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Just read it. Anyone that's can right. read it accessible to anyone. Well, I was more interested because it's sort of, um, I've had a number of, uh, historical fiction writers on the podcast. And I know that with that genre comes, a lot of research, a lot of um, background work that you have to put into it outside of like actually writing the prose. And then you've combined that also with fantasy, which involves, often involves a lot of world building and things like that. So writing a novel like this, is there a lot of preparation that goes into it before you even sort of start writing out the story? Yeah, absolutely. I was really excited about fusing fantasy magic with uh the historical record and so it was super important to me that basically everything in the book be historically verifiable so everything that's represented as having been at the fair is attested in the historical record if you follow the characters uh journeys around the city of chicago you can track them on a map they are accurate um which of course takes 
a little bit of preparation. But the truth of the matter is, uh, in, in the age of Google Street View um, <laughs> uh, and and the wonderful digitization, excuse me, digitization of uh, a lot of great old texts, you can get most of the heavy lifting done from from your writing desk, which didn't certainly used to be the case. Yeah. Uh, so quite a bit of research, but at least comfortably seated for most of it. Um, and then in terms of uh, fusing the sort of nitty gritty detail of the historical record with fantastical details, I, you know, Brandon Sanderson has uh, postulated this uh, sort of taxonomy of magic systems, the hard magic system versus the soft magic system. And uh, the hard magic system is, of course, the sort of, I would call it a mechanical magic system. Uh, yeah. I, I won't be too explicit, but if you swish and flick and say Wingardium Leviosa, the thing happens the same way every time, right? And writing a, a fantasy set in the 1890s, it struck me very much that this is the moment in which mechanization is coming into individual human lives uh, almost more than any other moment. And uh, Arthur C. Clarke, of course, said that any technology sufficiently advanced, excuse me, Arthur C. Clarke said, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And so I sort of had to sit there and think, well, for me, what is the distinction between magic and mechanics? If you do the exact same thing and get the exact same result, well, what's the, you know, maybe I'm summoning arcane knowledge from across the planet in 1893, but if it's the same as swiping up on TikTok, you know, and you get the same result, I don't know how, how that's magical. Uh, so for me, this is very much a soft magic system. It's about experience, it's about subjectivity, it's about uh, sense and sensation, yeah. um, which really actually helps to, to deepen the experience of reading a historical narrative, because so much of what brings history into relief is that sort of sense and sensation. Uh, so yeah. though it might seem on paper to be a little bit in conflict with itself, I found that the the two aspects of the story really enriched one another. Yeah, no, that's really interesting um, that you were thinking about. I would have just assumed straight away that you would go for a soft magic system because I am I right in thinking sort of part of the construction of this would be you do your research and you kind of you're seeing what's happening um, in in the in the sort of archives of this and wherever there is any kind of gap or or, or sort of like a blank section. That's a bit of leeway for you to be like, mm, maybe there could be something supernatural happening here. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, again, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but there was something in the history of the fair, uh, in the history of Chicago writ large, that really called out to me for uh, a supernatural explanation. So it, it, okay. you're absolutely right there. Okay. So this book, we, we kind of, you, you've alluded a bit to where the kind of inspiration for this book came from. It was, you were living in a house that was built around the same time and you kind of were reading about this incredible um, fair, like one of the biggest in the world. But your previous novels are also set, um, also historical, and but set very much different um, times, different places. You've got like World War II uh, for one of them. What is it, what was it for those two that kind of drew you in for different times and places? Well, my first, uh, my first book, Anna and the Swallow Man, I wrote sort of by accident. <laughs> I mentioned earlier uh, that I have a background in theater. That's actually what my education is. And I have a, a BFA in musical theater. And after graduation, I moved out to New York City, which is where in this country you go if you want to work in the commercial theater. Mm -hmm. 
And I was lucky to, to have a little bit of a career out there, but uh, no matter how lucky you are, there are periods in between contracts. Uh, and I was sort of looking to keep myself entertained and engaged uh, in a long, long stretch of working, processing delivery orders in a Mexican restaurant. Uh, so, so I thought I'd come up with a, yeah, I thought I'd come up with a, a solo performance piece for myself. Um, at the time, I was doing a lot of listening to podcasts, which, as we all know, is uh, God's work. Um, <laughs> of course. And uh, reading around as I do, and there were some pieces in the ether. I had recently listened to a podcast, um, actually, wonderful BBC radio program that is podcasted in our time. Um, was talking about uh, the Robin Hood uh, mythos and how that sort of accreted as, as folk history and folk tale. And uh, another episode about the fraudulent Holocaust memoir Fragments by Benjamin Vilkomirsky. And, um, you know, I was sort of thinking about, okay, the again, this is sort of about the cleavage between subjectivity and objectivity, history and experience. Um, you know, where, where we turn our own experiences and memories into myths and how they sort of grow larger than objective record and what the sort of boundaries uh, are in, in that interaction. Um, and so I started to come up with this story. I thought, you know, for the solo performance piece, the sort of uh, notion could be that I discovered the unpublished manuscript of a Holocaust memoir that seemed lightly fantastical in the back of a used bookshop. And then the whole evening would be uh, me sort of interrogating the subjective objective edges of this story. And in order to do that, the first thing I had to do is sit down and write this unpublished Holocaust uh, manus memoir manuscript. So I did that. Um, I showed it to my then girlfriend who is now my wife. And she was like, listen, I think you accidentally wrote a novel. And I was like, that's nonsense. <laughs> uh, I put it away in a drawer. I had a performing gig. I went away and did a, a three-month concert tour in Japan. And I came back and I pulled it back out of the drawer. And what do you know? I had accidentally written a novel. <laughs> um, and that was that ended up being on on The Swallow Man, uh, which very much is uh, concerned with that sort of boundary between uh, – experience and memory uh, very much concerned i would say with uncertainty um which sometimes uh can aggravate readers who are looking for a, a nice bow at the end of the book i, I don't do yeah. nice bows very often <laughs> uh doesn't seem to me to be uh, my experience of the, of the world yeah uh but that was Anna and the swallow man uh so that ended up set in the second world war in poland um my second novel the way back uh, is said in the 19th century in uh, and around a Jewish shtetl that I imagined called Tupik. The implication is that it's in the Russian Empire at the time, but many, many of the little Russian, or I should say, many of the little uh, Jewish villages uh, in that time and place shifted national possession as the borders in Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and the Russian Empire all sort of ebbed and flowed with various conquests. Um, and that book was, uh, there were a couple of different sort of missions for me in that book. Firstly, I grew up uh, as an Orthodox Jew and as a voracious reader of fantasy. And I was puzzled by the fact that at that time, this is changing now, but at that time there really wasn't very much 
uh, in fantasy that explored the deeply magical <laughs> uh, sort of corners and background uh, in, in my faith and culture. And so I wanted to write a book that was equally accessible and equally true for people with strong Jewish backgrounds and people with strong fantastical backgrounds. Okay. And so that was sort of one of the, the major seeds in that book. The other one was that uh, around the time that I started working on it, um, I suffered my first sort of major experience personally with death, um, which happens, of course, eventually to all of us. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to make sense of it. Um, you know, I, I'm talking about all these books and their component parts as if they're, they're discrete sort of puzzle pieces that interlock neatly. But my experience has mostly been like, a book is made out of the sort of intellectual debris you find around you at, at any moment. And you only really after the fact, once it's all packaged and polished, begin to understand what it's made of. Um, yeah. So, you know, these impulses, very few of them were legible to me <laughs> when I was writing. Um, and I honestly, I think that's better. You know, there, uh, there's, of course, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, this this sort of dichotomous philosophical question of, you know, do you plan the, the panthers versus, versus the planters, right? Do you, do you plan everything out ahead of time or do you just sort of roll along and see what happens? And of course, as is often the case, the, the best answer has to be a little bit of a happy medium, but I'm very, very resistant to over planning. I think, you know, all art, necessarily is a vessel for some sort of living impulse and if if you make the architecture too tight then there's no space for the impulse to live inside you know you gotta you gotta let yourself be surprised by yourself or else what are you doing you know going yeah i see what you're saying i've always thought that that the the planner versus panther thing is is um actually like the two things are much closer than i think um people often say because i i I kind of believe that if you're planning it, you, you're planning it anyway, if you're, if you're in quotes, pantsing it because your, but your plan is not sort of like bullet points and like note form. Your plan is just to write the whole thing as prose. And then you're going to rewrite a lot of that anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a question of, of identification more than yeah. actually practical. I mean, also, I mean, I don't know. I don't know many strict planners but i can't imagine even if you do like plan everything out to the last detail that you wouldn't meet the paper and want to change something once in a while and in that case you're pantsing it you know what i mean and certainly you can't <laughs> yeah. just sit down at your writing surface of choice and and start without any kind of daydreaming like there's no that doesn't you know and so the daydreaming is a certain kind of architecture in and of itself yeah uh, exactly. so i think you're right i think you're right for sure you're planning it at some, some, whether it's on the paper or in your head or like somewhere in the ether, like the plan is forming. Just, right. the, the ideas are taking shape and then you are translating them onto the paper. For sure. At some point like that. Um, getting back onto you and, and, and off uh, whatever tangent we've ended up on here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all of your novels so far, historical fiction with fantastical elements. I have a sort of two part question. Would you, uh, would you ever write something contemporary or would you ever write something without fantastical elements? Uh, certainly, I would love to write something contemporary. <laughs> I think about this all the time because you okay. tie one hand behind your back when you write in, in history, right? Uh, there's a certain kind of relatability gap 
um, that makes it difficult for people to immediately plug into characters from history. Now, I say that as if it's a liability, and it is to a certain degree, but my fiction is also a little bit weird, which is to say it's not novelistic, really. It's not about psychological portraiture. It's much more akin to folktale and, weirdly enough, I think, kind of to, like, narrative computer games. Okay. Uh, my protagonists uh, rarely are, you know, the sort of person that you sort of stand two steps behind and watch them go through, like, moral dilemmas and, like, you know, figure out their foibles. Mm -hmm. In general, my protagonists are empty suits of clothes that you get to step into. Um, and you get to sort of follow these decisions and feel these senses and sensations as you go along. Um, and the truth is historical distance helps bridge that gap a little bit, right? Because if you meet someone on the street, you expect them to be a psychologically textured human being. Whereas if you're looking at a sepia tone photograph of someone, well, there's already a little bit of a sort of alienation from that person's particular human experience. And, you know, that, that, that can be a useful gap to exploit. Yeah, that's so true. So it works both ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's a kind of fascination with it where you're like, oh, this, this is something that this is sort of did happen. And like, this is how people did live. And this is how the world was. And it's kind of interesting to look back at that. Oh, and I, I guess the 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 other side of that coin with contemporary is is some people are like uh, I'm living this. I don't want like I don't want to read about it. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. <laughs> for exactly sure. how it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Particularly given the the period of history that we've all just hopefully come through. Um, yeah. <laughs> every, something new seems to happen every year as soon as for we think sure. we're in the clear. Yeah. Though, so. yeah, that's right. Uh, but I want to answer the other half of your question, which is whether yes. or not I'd write something without magic. And the truth of the matter is. I'm not sure that's possible. Um, when you, this is hard, right? Because the the sort of term of art, people sometimes ask one another, do you believe in magic? I'm not quite sure what people mean when they use the word believe there. Um, I think it's about whether or not people validate the authenticity of subjective experience. Um because that's the thing, right? We've we've gotten ourselves. We were all born into a post enlightenment philosophical setting, right, where we understand the importance of rationality and, generally speaking, govern our lives on the basis of rational rules, right? Routine, repeatability, uh, you know, analyzability, and that's great. That's tremendous. <laughs> you know, I'm very very glad to be living in the age of penicillin, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And also, human beings are not exclusively rational creatures. We have a rational capability. We also have a lot of other capabilities and modes of being. Um, and our experiences are never reproducible. <laughs> and uh, they're all deeply, deeply personal. And I keep on using this word. Uh, I should talk to my therapist. Subjective, right? Um, uh, and I don't – I think – when people talk about magical experience, again, this is a sort of a reflection of my uh, uh, attachment to soft magic systems as opposed to hard magic systems. But my experience of my own life is dotted with these moments of particular subjective transcendence, right? These moments where it seems like the whole universe is conspiring to shine a spotlight on some tiny symbolic detail of, of my own life. Um, and so I am pretty persuaded that that's what 
narrative art does. I mean, even, you know, your most high realism kinds of novels, they're all geared towards surrounding these moments of particular personal transcendence, which strike me as like the cornerstone of magical experience. You know, I joked before about like, what, what's the genre of Macbeth? Well, you know, that's a little, that's a little bit of a cheat, right? Because there's, there's witches in it, but like think of almost any major canonical <laughs> narrative work and you'd be hard pressed not to find one that can, you'd be hard pressed to find one that doesn't contain uh, one of these moments of, uh, you know, subjective transcendence. So I'm not sure that there's such thing as narrative art without magic is, is what I'm saying. Um, okay, which is maybe yeah. a semantic objection. I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it's an important one. Uh, semantics uh, carry weight, certainly in writing. I guess it also comes down to how you, and, and like what, a lot of that was your kind of how you define magic. Um, so like the, the definition of magic obviously comes a lot into that conversation because someone might just say, no, magic is someone who holds a wand and casts a spell. <laughs> yeah, but again, I mean, I don't know. Sure, you can say magic is someone who holds a wand and casts a spell. You can also say music is Elton John exclusively. Like, sure, like Elton John is music. Like a dude with a wand is magic. But like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. you know, not exclusively. There are more vegetables than just cucumbers. <laughs> yes, that's thank God that's true. Uh, <laughs> let's get onto a bit more of the. Um, We've talked a lot about the the art and the creative process and things like that, and it's been great. L I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your your kind of publishing experience and like how um, you kind of found your way into publishing. Anna and the Swallow Man, um, your debut came out 2016. Mm -hmm. How long, and, and we kind of know this, it was a great kind of story as how it came to be, but how long after you kind of realized that you'd accidentally written a novel and decided sort of, well, maybe I can actually, you know, take this further and get it published. How long was that kind of process before you had sort of found an agent? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not going to be great with timelines. Uh, I will say uh, sort of qualitatively, I showed it to a friend of mine who was sort of publishing adjacent at the time, much more uh, plugged into the publishing world than I was. And she was like, listen, I think the next thing you need is an agent. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> So I went <laughs> to the that? internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I went to my friend, Dr. Google. Um, and, you know, this is, again, one of the wonderful things about the age of the internet is you can find out what you need to know wherever you are. Uh, and so, I, you know, I just looked up some examples of query letters uh, and started querying, um, which is, I, I got tremendously lucky to land with my agent. So it was a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful advocate. Um, and <laughs> I will say this uh, there. I know there are a lot of people out there who are querying and have been querying on any number of projects and are probably feeling pretty deflated about the whole issue. Uh, here's a little bit of, uh, I don't know if this is comforting or terrible, but here's a little story for you. Um, I sent out many query letters uh, when I was trying, trying to get myself hooked up with an agent. I got a form rejection from one of those query letters after the book had been published and had landed on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> no way. Yep. Yeah. That's oh my what, God. I mean, it's terrible. That, I mean, that's the terrible, terrible <laughs> truth, right? Is that like a lot of folks aren't paying attention to query letters 
or aren't paying attention to the New York Times bestseller list, or both. I mean, you know, there's we give a lot as artists. I think we give a lot of authority to gatekeepers in ways that we really shouldn't. You know, we're all looking for the imprimatur, like you're good enough, you're talented enough, this is worthwhile what you're spending time doing. But none of us gets into art uh, because we want to be validated. We get into art because it's fun. And then once we're in the art, we're like, oh, I guess I, I want to understand how well I stack up against others, which is a natural impulse. There's nothing morally wrong with that. But we can sometimes lose track of the fact that, you know, why are you, why are you making up stories? Because it's fun. Why do you read books? Because it's transporting. You know, why do you listen to music? Because it's great. You don't need someone to put the rubber stamp on you and say, ah, this is something worthy of publication. If you're enjoying making it, if other people are, are getting things out of it when they consume it, that's the whole game. And I know that that sounds pyrrhic, and I know that it's super easy to say that from my particular seat. But from my particular seat, having <laughs> received you know rubber stamps and accolades, they don't, they don't make you feel the way that you imagine that they're going to make you feel. They're mm-hmm. great. I mean, they're tremendously flattering. Really, really wonderful. And if you're well psychologically adjusted, then you can internalize them, you know, and appreciate them. But the truth of the matter is very few people are properly psychologically adjusted to do that. It's just one more, you know, well, but I can't actually be good, right? No, you're good. (laughs) If you're enjoying it, that's the whole game. Yeah, I've spoken to plenty of authors who have been doing this for for like decades, have have dozens of books out, and they still say every time they sit down to write a new book, the imposter syndrome comes back, and they think, "Oh my god, I'm like, can I do it again? Like, I did it. I've already done it loads of times, but I don't know if maybe I was just lucky all of those other times." That's absolutely right. And the thing of the thing of it is, too, if you can do <laughs> whatever it is you need to do to shift the goalposts away from the rubber stamps and the accolades and towards the actual work, the actual work's going to be so much better, so much yeah. better. When you're worried about proving yourself, what comes through in the writing is look how good I am, which sometimes look, honestly, sometimes that's impressive, right? <laughs> a virtuoso is a virtuoso, but virtuosic performance is rarely, it rarely doesn't have much staying power, right? It, fireworks are cool for 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, it gets pretty loud, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it's much better, I think, just to focus on your heart and who you want to give the story to and what's exciting to you in your imagination. Yeah. I'm working on that. I hope <laughs> it's something that I can achieve. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And also, even uh, you speak to authors who have you know like yourself received some really good critical acclaim and and as you say got the stamps and the and the thumbs up and things and what the the thing you hear a lot is that the the real validation that they find if they're looking for external validation the the most validating thing is when they meet um a, a fan of of the novel who comes up and says look this was such a great novel novel i really attached with this character and it really helps me through like processing a certain information or an experience that i was going through that's like the real validation absolutely i mean that's the thing about particularly writing necessarily even you know even if you're listening to an audiobook, even if you're in a group listening to a narrative being read out loud, the experience of narrative 
uh, art is entirely individual. It's all happening inside your own head. And we live in an era of data aggregation, right? So the feedback that writers often get about their work is corporate, very, very literally, yeah. right? It's a conglomerate, which is not the experience of the art ever. The experience of the art is always deeply individual and personal. And so you're absolutely right. The real validation, the real moments where you're like, I am glad that this is the way I'm spending my life is when you're standing with one other person, right? And you get these sort of dreams and visions in your mind of like, like a vast audience, a vast public consuming your work. And like, sure, but that they're only valuable as a vast public insofar as they reflect a vast number of individual experiences. And I w- yeah. want to say also in the, in the, uh, the era of data aggregation, there is an impression created that it is possible for any particular piece of art to suit all people. This is not off the rack clothing that we're talking about here. No piece of art is good for every audience member. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like you can't expect your work to, to please everyone. It's that's not what it's for. That's not why we're here. It's all about individual weird connections across space and time through paper and ink. Yes. I it's almost uh it's not, but it's like it's close to it's it's failure adjacent, I think, if you've created something that pleases everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean it's it's interesting. I you know, I certainly I don't have any particular project in mind, but it's notable to me that mega sellers, you know, the massive, massive quote unquote successes are often decried as of kind of thin literary value, thin artistic value, right? Because yeah. if it's really if it fits all, then it doesn't have very much specific tailoring to it, does it? It's mm-hmm. kind of general. Yeah, what does it have to say? Like, right. what's the statement that's being made? I mean, you, it, the easiest thing for me to point out is Hollywood, and you see, you know, movies are designed basically to be like the, like middle of the road, the most inoffensive to everyone, so that everyone will see it and be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly the response you want as like a writer trying to yeah, create like inspiring exactly emotional right. journeys. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, but... it's fine. Is not not the goal. In fact. I would, I would, I would venture to say I might prefer. Uh, I, I loathed this over a yeah, it's fine. And believe me, I've had plenty of my my fair share of I loathed this. I think actually, uh, when someone loathes a piece of art, it's because it has been effective in a certain way, right? You've touched a nerve, uh, and so obviously that can be really challenging to receive that sort of feedback to to see that someone has like had a really negative experience with something that you worked to try and provide a positive experience with. But it's important to remember that like art is not all about feeling good. Art is not yeah. all about being comfortable. If you made someone mm-hmm. uncomfortable enough that they want to talk about it, you probably did something right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think the, for me that there's like a stark example of that is the, um, the last of us part two. Mm. A lot of people yeah. will know the last of us part one now from the television series, but just wait till you get part two. That stayed with me for months <laughs> and yeah. I kept changing my mind on it. And I was, and I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And I, I wrestled with it long after I'd finished playing it since I finished the, the experience. And like that, I was like, this is unequivocally like 
triggering amazing emotional reactions and like internal discussions within me. Mm, that's the good that, stuff. That's art, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already running over time, so let's get into what is always the final question. Uh, Gabriel, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take with you? Okay, I went back and forth on this so, so much. Uh, and I think here's what I'm going to do. This may be the most boring answer, okay. but I hope it's not for the most boring reason. I think my answer is the Hebrew Bible, and I'll, I'll okay. tell you why for two reasons. Firstly, most editions of the Hebrew Bible uh, contain both the Hebrew text and an English translation. So I feel like I've sort of hacked the system there in getting myself <laughs> two separate two books. texts. Right. <laughs> um, also, of course, the, the Bible is composed of a tremendous amount of discrete episodic and wildly various narrative and non-narrative mm-hmm. material, poetry, uh, history, obviously. So plenty of different things uh, to work on. Um, but for me, it maybe all comes down to the book of Genesis, which okay. uh, is just, it's sometimes hard to remember or notice even what an incredible literary construction, if you can call it that without offending too many people, the book of Genesis really is. Uh, there's there's a, a broad arc over the book. There are incredible individual character arcs over the course of the book. The writing, uh, both in the Hebrew and then also in the King James translation, uh, incredibly beautiful use of language, and uh, in some ways, important ways, uh, really ambiguous and open to interpretation. Uh, we have seen over the course of thousands of years of religious history that the book repair, uh, bears repeated uh, reading. So I, I, I can be pretty certain I won't get bored with it. So this is all to say that while, of course, taking the Bible uh, to the to the desert island has a religious valence to it, it's not an exclusively religious choice. It's also very deeply a literary choice. And within the larger Bible, certainly the book of Genesis, I mean, I was rereading the book of Job recently. Some of the best poetry I know of uh, in the English language is the King James translation of the book of Job. It's wildly good. Um, all to say worth reading even if you're not particularly interested in religion there's a lot of incredible writing in that book yeah no i totally agree and obviously that's you know we're talking about what is probably one of the most influential pieces of like art on the human like race absolutely as a group so without question i have to imagine it's a pretty common answer though right (laughs) it's you'd be surprised actually it's not no really well then i'm lucky yeah usually um uh the bible gets outdone by jane austen um mm, yeah lot, another so. another strong strong contender probably yeah. more <laughs> more laughs in the jane austen over yeah exactly a bit more fun a <laughs> bit more people go for the cozy option with the jane austen but <laughs> yeah. um a great choice nonetheless and i know exactly what you're talking about as well it's weird because i read um the alchemist and as someone who is not particularly religious that book is it has like a very religious backbone to it but it's i read it completely non-religiously and like it's so the philosophy of it and the kind of beauty of the way that it's written and the kind of the message that he's putting out is just it, i loved it i absolutely, absolutely loved it even though yeah fantastic book even though the religion is like was not something that kind of reached me on that level it reached me in a different way sure but 
anyway, thank you so much, Gabriel, for coming on the podcast and um, telling us all about your your writing and your and your publishing journey and, and everything that that you've been you've been up to. It's really awesome chatting with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Gabriel is doing, you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriel Sabat. Uh, you can also find him on the website www.gabrielsabat.com. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can support the show on Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Gabriel and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.